Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we talk about the skills most frequently used by engineering professionals and where those skills are acquired. Along the way, we discuss looking out at work, flunking out at school, and zoning out with our favorite YouTube channels. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 124, Mad Skills, January 23rd, 2017. So, Brian... How often do you follow parliamentary procedure at work? Uh, do we have quorum for this? I do believe that with the four out of four of us, we do have quorum for this. Yes. Hmm. Have we checked with the superdelegates? Ooh. Do we, do we all have voting shares? There are no shares to be had, so we don't have any voting shares. Hmm. I don't think we have superdelegates either. Okay. Well, the short answer is no. But I have been in situations where we have had to use Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, such that I don't remember them. That's how long ago it was, but, uh, but I am aware that they exist. Why do you ask? Well, we had an email, uh, recently from Greg and Greg is a engineer and is knowledgeable about the rules of parliamentary procedure. He's not from the UK, is he? Uh, no, he's from actually from North Carolina down in Carmen's part of the world. Ah, woohoo. So anyway, Greg, Greg wrote to us and said, I was listening to your recent episode answering a college, a current college student's questions. I think that was the episode Jared asks. Uh, and Greg continues, from time to time, I would hear someone chime in with quorum at the end of a discussion on a specific question. While this is a correct parliamentary procedure term, it does not mean what it was used as. Quorum is the number of eligible people in an entire voting organization needed to make a decision or vote. On a motion, say an organization of 10 people has only four members present, then they likely would not have quorum to make any decisions. The parliamentary procedure that should have been used is consent. Mm. Consent can be called when, to avoid counting a vote, a suspected unanimous affirmation of a motion can be determined. If consent has been called, an objection can be called to go through with counting the vote or to count the votes of importance. Consent is used to speed up meetings. So there you go, guys. Consent. I don't know that I consent to this. All four (laughs) of us were there, so we clearly had quorum. I don't think I was there. Was I? I have no idea, actually, which episode (laughs) this is referring to at this point. I I think, actually, you're correct, Adam. You weren't there, so we had three out of four. I I think we would still have had quorum. Super majority, at least. Uh, We have to go check our bylaws. (laughs) That's right. I'll get, I'll get on those just any day now. Yes. You'll have to put them on the consent agenda. Right. Right. So you have used, Brian, at some point you've used parliamentary procedure in your work. I mean, this is not just like, you know, you went to the town council meeting. Oh, God, no. No, this is a fraternity. But uh, <laughs> no. Okay. It'd be interesting to use at work. It might get meetings done at least a fifth as quickly. Um, <laughs> you know, because 
parliamentary procedure known to speed things up. Right. Well, mm-hmm. apparently, if you know the word consent, it can work for that. Yes. I, I think what that does is it makes them only uh, four times slower instead of five. Mm. <laughs> well, it, nonetheless, uh, Greg, we appreciate your letting us know uh, about our misconceptions about the proper terms to use uh, in parliamentary procedure, and we will try in the future to do better. No guarantee, but we will try. We'll find new things to screw up. Next thing he's going to tell me that power is in voltage squared times current. It isn't. Shh. <laughs> All right. We, do we really want to begin fact-checking this show? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> not really. All right. Well, in this episode, I thought that we would talk about skills that we learned on the job. And we've talked in past episodes a lot about, you know, there are the things you learn in school and then uh, you go out into industry. And I think, Brian, you said it was like getting a uh, a learner's permit. You know, the engineering degree was not telling you everything you needed to know, but, but merely allowing you out into the world to learn about the uh, skills of engineering. And for the record, I am sure I lifted that statement from somebody else. So, <laughs> okay. I freely attribute it to whoever originally said it. Right. Well, and so I think that we all have this idea that that we're using skills that we we didn't cover in school, and and as our careers go on, we have a a new variety of skills. We we tend to move. Uh, many people tend to move from say engineering into management, or from uh, introductory uh, beginning level junior engineer to senior level engineering positions, and so we we learn new skills. Um, hack to advanced hack, <laughs> right. Right. And so I I was looking for, are there any, are there any surveys that are, are there any studies? Is there anything that which we can grasp onto uh, to give us some idea of which skills are most uh, frequently used and which skills are considered most important to those practicing in the realm of engineering? And so I came across a series of studies that came out of MIT uh, that talked about some of these issues. Now, MIT, of course, is a very prestigious school. And so uh, the people going to MIT uh, are uh, naturally quite bright. And so uh, perhaps their findings don't apply to all engineers. But nonetheless, it was uh, the only study I could easily find that talked about this survey of skills. And so I thought that in this episode, we would talk about the mad skills that one has to learn in an engineering career. Excellent. Let's do it. All right. So to give uh, a little background to these uh, studies, there was a uh, report put out by Edward Crawley from MIT uh, back in 2001, and this was as part of an effort to develop a new uh, curriculum for engineers. Uh, this uh, this uh, organization that this was done for uh, is known as CDIO, which is for Conceive, Design, Implement, and Operate. Uh, which are skills that uh, this group believes are important for engineers to have. And so this report was called the the CDIO syllabus and basically uh, subtitled a statement of goals for undergraduate engineering education. And they basically went through and tried to identify the skills that an engineer needs in practice, as opposed to uh, you know a theoretical uh, review of what skills engineers should be taught in engineering school. So, this report was done and laid out uh, some 
high level areas. Uh, the, the four big blocks that they had were number one was technical knowledge and reasoning. Uh, two was personal and professional skills. Three was interpersonal skills. And four were these CDIO skills of conceiving, designing, implementing, and operating. Okay, so go forward a couple of years, and a survey was done by an undergraduate at MIT uh, named Catherine Kelly, and she studied the career paths of MIT undergraduates over a span of 35 years. And what she found was that about two-thirds of each graduating class, this is Emmys out of MIT, approximately two-thirds of each graduating class become engineers and or managers. As the number of years since graduation increases, the percentage of engineers decreases while the percentage of managers increase. So it's not uh, surprising that some of the engineers are transferring into management as their careers uh, proceed. But uh, what I did think was interesting was that out of a a top-notch school like MIT, a third of the graduating class never become engineers or managers. They go on to other careers. Does that seem at all surprising to you guys? I've heard similar numbers from other universities. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming they die, but <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't know exactly what happens. Yeah, there, there's a report, uh, and I've, I've ref- referenced it in the past, and it is out of George. I think it's Georgetown uh, that they did a survey of engineers that had the so- same sort of thing. Where uh, I think the numbers I heard were like forty to fifty percent. I think it was 40% of engineering graduates didn't become, never got an engineering job, something like that. 40 sounds uh, kind of high, but I'm not going to dispute it because I have nothing to go with. Well, so uh, here at MIT, they're saying two-thirds, so that's 33%. No, but I, I mean, okay, so MIT versus Georgetown. I mean, Georgetown's a fine school. Well, well, no, Georgetown was just doing a survey of other people. I don't think they were oh. talking about just their graduates, just somebody in the university was doing this survey. Okay, because I mean, I could imagine, you know, a amongst the top five engineering schools, you might get a lot of engineering undergrads being peeled off to financial engineering, which nobody on the planet can fit, considers engineering, right? Um, but I mean, uh, most other organizations which produce most of the other engineers aren't going to be doing that. So, I wonder where they're ending up. Yeah, I I don't know. No. General financial financial services seems to be the most likely place, but you know, who knows? Well, I I do know that you know the financial services does does attract a lot of engineers, especially those that are in, in controls or you know information theory because or stats uh, because so much of what they're doing is is trying to you know outthink the market. Well, I mean that's where I was saying the financial engineering side. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the quants are typically physicists, mathematicians, and engineers. So, but there aren't that many of those. Right, right. So I've uh, I've quickly gone back to a past episode that we did, episode one twelve, Boomer Exodus, and the show notes indicate that Georgetown University Center on Education in the Workforce published a two thousand eleven study on STEM careers, noting that ten years after graduation. of STEM graduates have left the field. Jeez. That seems really, really high. I wonder what it is for other, for other degrees though. Mm, Yeah, that I don't know. I also think that there's this, we we talk about management, which 
may or may not be considered engineering, depending on who you talk to. And at least where I work, a, a lot of our managers are also technical staff. It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, now you're a manager. Now you don't do engineering anymore. And I'm assuming it's similar right. in other places. Where is that line it, it is somewhat a arbitrary decision. So I, I wonder if that may be biasing those numbers. Yeah. And, and it's hard to tell when you say management is that is that engineering management? Is that sales management? You know, the, the work done by a manager could, could vary drastically depending on what area of the organization they're working in. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's an article, with, but I'm not going to dig that deeply. Uh, 40% of female engineers leave the field. Yeah. I, hmm. It sounds like those are the numbers for engineers across the board. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know. I, I, I mean, I do I, I do know several engineers that I've worked with over the years that have left. I There was there was one who decided to become a chef and, and now runs a business. Uh, if you need someone to come in and, and uh, cater a, a uh, event or you want, you know, someone to cook in a, come in and cook a personal meal for, for an occasion, he's willing to do it. And, and I had another friend who, uh, uh decided that, uh, his wife had, uh, started a business, uh, actually cleaning houses and the business took off and she needed help running the business and, and, uh, he quit his engineering job to become part of the business and, and help run that. So. It does happen. It isn't that that uh, no one gets into engineering and then says, "Hey, I there's there's something else I'd rather do." Of course, uh, I, I on a hunch, I just looked this up. Uh, you know, if we're rounding up, twenty four percent of um, lawyers who passed the bar in two thousand are practicing. Only twenty four percent. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to call that a similar number, but I mean it's. <clears throat> Time and finance-wise, it's probably more difficult to get a law degree than a Bachelor of Science in Engineering, but mostly on the money side. Mm -hmm. So maybe that incentivizes more people to stay in the field than engineers. But, I mean, still, you know, a quarter of lawyers who pass the bar aren't practicing. Hmm. So maybe it's not all that different for engineers. Maybe so. Okay. Well, so so this 2003 survey of, of the ME department led to a survey in the following year, sort of inspired a survey uh, in the next year by Kristen Wolf. And uh, apparently they do a lot of these theses. Is that the right word? Thesis is the plural theses? I think it's just these. Thesis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, anyway, she did this undergraduate thesis, or, or at least a thesis as part of her bachelor's degree. Uh, it was titled Understanding the Careers of Alumni of the M- MIT Mechanical Engineering Department. And uh, this is available online. Uh, most All of these uh, reports are available online, and I'll have links to it in the show notes. But she went back in, uh, in 2000, I'm guessing about 2003, collected data from the graduating classes of 1992 through 1996. So that would have been roughly, you know, eight to 12 years prior. And so she, you know, seemed to be looking at, you know, what happens when you've been on in, in the business in as an engineer for about 10 years. And so 
she, you know, uh, decided, had to decide, well, what am I going to major? What am I going to uh, use as my major of, of skills? And this goes back to the CDIO report done by Crawley. She used uh, the same four big sections that were used by Crawley, technical knowledge and reasoning, personal and professional skills, interpersonal skills, and engineering skills. She changed the CDIO to be skills that were more related to uh, skills that were trained at MIT. That is the cor- what what courses taught at MIT. And so she sent out this uh, this survey to the these people. Had about a forty six percent response rate, and the these items came back. And we'll talk in just a minute about what the results of these uh, surveys were. But to give you an idea, under technical knowledge and reasoning, they asked about eleven areas: underlying science, underlying math, mechanics of solids, mechanic. Uh, mechanical behavior of materials, system dynamics control, dynamics, fluid mechanics, thermodynamics, heat transfer, engineering design process, and manufacturing. So obviously this was a mechanical engineering centric survey. These are topics that are, are typically taught in uh, the mechanical engineering curriculum. And then under the personal professional skills and attributes, it was engineering reasoning and problem solving, experimentation and knowledge and discovery, system thinking, personal skills and attributes, professional skills and attributes, and independent thinking. Now, when I first read through this set, I I understood most of them, but I was wondering personal skills and attributes, and exactly what did they mean by personal skills? Um, Showering, shaving, brushing (laughs) your teeth. Yeah, exactly. I kind of of, uh, wondered about that. Uh, I actually went back uh, and fought through the uh, the CDIO uh, survey and found a listing. And so it had for personal skills and attributes, they had uh, one, initiative and willingness to take risks, two, perseverance and flexibility, three, creative thinking, four, critical thinking, five, awareness of one's personal knowledge, skills, and attributes, six, curiosity and lifelong learning, seven, time and resource management. So- Critical thinking is shockingly low, low on that list. Well, I, these are these are not necessarily in order of importance. They're just oh, in okay, I norm got you. Arbitrary list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So we have uh, so we had number one big area technical knowledge and reasoning. Number two personal and professional skills. Number three interpersonal skills, uh, which consisted of two categories: teamwork and communications, and four engineering skills, which consisted of external and societal context. Number two, enterprise and business context. Three, market context. Four, developing an idea. Five, designing. And six, testing. All right. So uh, just to give you a sense of, of, you know, the big picture, the technical knowledge and reasoning is sort of like the base underlying science. We might call it engineering science, you know, fluid mechanics, thermodynamics. Number two, the personal skills, you know, sort of self-awareness. Number three, interpersonal skills. Can you work with others? And number four, the engineering skills, you know, pulling it all together and actually getting stuff done in the real world. So she did her survey and produced some uh, charts that showed uh, three things. The, the expected proficiency, that is, after 10 years as an engineer, what were you expected to be proficient at? Secondly, how frequently did you use these skills? And third, where did you learn them from? So if you, if you can find these in her, her survey, but the area number one, the sort of the basic sciences, the thermodynamics, the fluid mechanics, 
the average rating for these was somewhere between one and two. That is, zero is have essentially no knowledge of, one is you have to be experienced or exposed to, two is be able to participate in and contribute to, three is to be able to understand and explain, four to be skilled in the precise in the practice or implementation, and five to be able to lead or innovate. So, you know, the sort of science that we spent all that time on in school is somewhere between a one and two, somewhere between have, have been exposed to and can participate in. So really all you all you have to do is uh just show up to class and pass with a C and you're good to go. <laughs> well I don't know. Uh some of the analysis uh coming at the end of the paper talked about the fact that we we as engineers, as uh, mechanical engineers get, you know, spread out to a wide variety of industries. Uh and this is true with I would say with most engineers, you know, uh, you know, there are there are wide applications of engineering skills. So uh, if someone goes into a field that uses fluid mechanics, then you may need to be very skilled in fluid mechanics. But if you're not in, you know, pipe flow or something, you may not ever really worry too much about fluid mechanics after you've graduated from college. Exactly. I've never cared about anything above a gigahertz in my career so far. <laughs> That's a big yet. <laughs> That's true. But I don't think switching regulators are going to get that fast just yet. Oh, you wait. I look forward to it, but I'd be surprised. But yeah, I'm looking. I, I'm looking at this chart and thinking that most mechanical engineers could probably skip heat transfer, thermodynamics, fluid dynamics, dynamics, system dynamics. If there's a dynamics, <laughs> you can probably, probably skip it. Right? Um, are those important for mechanical engineers? Well, it depends where you're at. You know, if you're if you're based on the survey results, it says I would say no. Yeah. So it's like lots of other things, right? There is somebody in some office who spends their life doing this research and designing, you know, a, the, the, the perfect radiator or the perfect, you know, pipe uh, or the perfect fitting or something where all these, you know, fluid flow or, or heat transfer is very important. But to the other, you know, 98% of the engineers graduating in that same class, they go out and buy it. Are they going to design their own? You know, valve fitting? No, they're going to buy it, and all they just look it up in the catalog. Say, okay, for this for this flow rate and this material and this viscosity and this temperature and this pressure, whatever, this is the one to use. They don't have to go back and do the calculations themselves. So, I think that I would warn people not to read too much into it. Well, this is not important because I think that uh, the scale is appropriate. That is, these rate between one and two. You you should have been exposed to. And you should be perhaps able to maybe able to participate in. For most engineers, that background they've had in class, they've done a few problems ten years ago uh, that they kind of understood. Well, that's enough to let them understand some of what the important concepts are, what some of the terminology is, uh, you know, the basic ideas of what works and doesn't work, and that allows them to ask enough questions to go talk to their vendor or their uh, you know neighboring engineer and say, hey, is this appropriate to the application I want to use it for? Or based on engineering re reasoning and problem solving, recognize when your vendor is feeding you a line. Yes. Yes. Or or part of that personal skills, knowing when you don't know enough to, to ask those questions. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, out, of, out of the list here of this, this number one category, I will note that the two highest, the highest one is engineering design processes, which I would say could go 
actually underneath the engineering practices of number four, but happened for whatever reason was here in number one. Uh, and the second highest, well, it looks like there was a close tie between manufacturing, which again, I would claim is sort of real world and underlying mathematics. So apparently quite a few of the graduates did feel like their mathematics was important. Underlying mathematics. I wonder where they drew the line there because, you know, I doubt they're all solving uh, or solving, you know, partial differential equations every day by hand, but it's got to be a little more than algebra, right? It's all spreadsheets. <laughs> it is probably a lot of spreadsheets. Right. So the uh, so number one was actually the the lowest rated of the categories. And as sort of as we move up, uh, the next highest category was number four, which are is the the realm of the engineering practices. So this includes testing, designing, developing an idea, market context, enterprise and business context, external and societal context. And so out of those, uh, noticeably low was external and societal context. So this was ranked about a one point five, whereas all the others in this in this fourth group ranked about a Number three, which was uh, should be able to understand and explain, and so it seems like there is a uh, a good deal of value placed on these sort of practical engineering skills, uh, and part of that is understanding the the application and the terminology that is uh, the context of the problem. It just doesn't have to benefit mankind. You just got to add some rockets and flashing lights until it looks cool. No, you're, well, so you're right. It doesn't have to benefit mankind, uh, as, as, but you, at some point, most engineers want to get paid. So they need to work for an organization that's selling something that people are willing to pay for. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you're lumping in uh, market context with, uh, external and societal context. Or maybe I'm reading them wrong. I would, I would think external and societal context is how does this help, you know, the average Joe out there as opposed to the customer which may or may mm -hmm. not overlap. Right. Well, so in my experience, usually uh, as an engineer, I wasn't allowed to have much say in what the product was going to be or how the product was going to be delivered. There was somebody from marketing coming in and saying, you know, we've done these surveys and we've talked to the customers and we will tell you what the customer needs. And so you listen to us and uh, do what we say. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think we're talking past each other here a little bit. Okay. Not, not, not as the customer could be anybody. You know, if you design, uh, you know, retro encabulators for PhDs in fluid mechanics, uh, you know, definitely have to understand what the customer is. And yeah, the marketing guys will set that. But it really, you know, you don't have to worry about how it affects, you know, how someone pays their bills, you know, working at, uh, at a grocery store. Or maybe I'm just looking at it wrong. That, that seems to be what I'm saying. Yeah, you have to know what your customer is, but not necessarily the wider picture of the world. That's how I'm reading it. Yeah. Well, and so if, if we look at, at the the uh, the results from the survey, uh, they have mar of the three contexts that are there, market context is the highest, slightly lower is business context, and way down from both of them is societal context. And I think that I think that's what I'm hearing you say, Carmen, is that that usually as an engineer, you're not having to worry too often about what's the effect on society and where are the our customers coming up, you know, why are our customers buying? We just have to worry about that our customers are buying and what is the market that we're trying to serve. Yes. Yeah, I think we're on the same page now. Okay, good. Consent? Quorum. 
<laughs> there we go. <laughs> I love using terms properly. <laughs> All right. So, so we've, uh, number one, which was the, the, uh, the underlying science skills. Number four, which were the more practical engineering skills. Those are the two lowest. We start moving up to the next highest. And the next one happened to be number two, which were all those personal skills. So things like independent thinking, uh, uh, systems thinking, uh, experimentation and knowledge discovery, engineering reasoning and problem solving. These all tended to be higher skills that were mostly between uh, threes and fours. Any surprise there? Not really. Yeah. Usually, like Brian said, it's all spreadsheets. So your design could take two days <laughs> and you got to convince people that you know what the hell you're doing. Yes. Right. Or learn to talk to the people who know what they're doing. I mean, or I should, you know, these sound so absolute, right? You, you know, when you don't know, you know, and things are all spreadsheets. But the reality is that no design is simple enough that you're going to have one person that understands the entire thing to the exclusion of anybody else. Right. So you've all got to find a way to bring your own little piece of the pie together. Right. And you should understand enough of what everybody else's piece of the pie is to at least understand how their piece works to some degree. And also to be able to explain your piece enough so that they get the same understanding of what you've done too. Mm -hmm. And we're still on two, right? So this would include experimentation and knowledge discovery, right? Yep. So I heard a great definition of a nerd. Uh, or I read it, I should say, which is a nerd is somebody who has learned all of the ways in which their brain can lie to them. Hmm. And uh, I, I'd say a good portion of my job is trying to fight my own confirmation bias mm -hmm. and think about ways to torpedo my own understanding of reality. Right. So my opinion is that the the typical engineering undergraduate curriculum uh, does that to a certain extent because at, at least for me, I mean, I was not really strong in math, but it just seemed like whatever I thought was the correct solution was not the, what, whatever my initial thought was as to the correct solution was never right. That I get into it and I'd have to back out and try various things. And, and so I was never, a problem was never solved until I'd gone around it about three or four times to look at it from all sides to see what I'd missed. Um, I don't think you're. I don't think you're representative of the culture at that point. Then, no, uh, you're exercising way too much humility. I, it was not humility. It was I was getting it wrong. Well, no, I mean, I, I think I, I think you'd be surprised at how little how little engineers like to hear that they're wrong mm -hmm. or upset. I mean, I don't know. I think the really good ones are ones who are very comfortable finding out that they're wrong and then trying to find another way, but. I'm I'm constantly being taught that that is a exception as opposed to the norm. Hmm. Well, that's a shame then. But you're right. I mean, if you're doing this right and you're being successful, there's zero chance that you're going to be right 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Well, th there's something too about it that I, uh, at least for me, maybe maybe you. No, no, you, you, I, I share your experience. I'm just, based on inference, I'm assuming that not a lot of other people do. Okay. 
Well, well, part of it is that that at least for me, engineering caused me the engineering curriculum caused me to temper my emotions. If I started into a problem and I thought this is a great idea, I often discovered it was a bad idea. If I thought it was a bad idea, I often discovered it was a great idea. If I thought I was on the wrong right track, I was on the wrong track. If I was on the wrong track, I was on the right track. And the the you know what I learned was you have to be systematic about plugging away and start uh, assessing what you're doing. And you can't rely on your emotions of how you feel like things are going. You have to try to uh, step back. When things are going really bad, don't let yourself get too down. When things are going really well, don't get let yourself get too excited. Uh, and then it's, that it's a constant plugging away at the problem and, and, and stepping back and looking at it and assessing where you are uh, that lets things move forward. Because at least for me, it was just, uh, it was too emotionally, if I got too excited about something and it went badly, it was too emotionally crushing. If things were going badly and I didn't persevere, then I would quit, you know, 90% of the projects I started. Yeah. And remember that that light at the end of the tunnel is just a freight train coming your way. <laughs> right. <laughs> just like the uh, Wiley E. Coyote. Yes. Uh, cartoons. Yeah. We, so we've covered in this study, uh, number one were the, uh, the technical areas. Uh, number two were the engineering areas. Number three were these personal skills. And number four were teamwork and a communication. And so the highest, well, I, I guess closely related. So the, there were three from the personal skills, independent thinking, professional skills, and personal skills. And those three were about equal to teamwork and communications which were the interpersonal skills. I feel like that's the most generic generic category ever. Yeah, but but <laughs> but this, these are engineers reporting, these are engineers self-reporting, right? So yeah, engineers yeah. are telling they know that this is going back to MIT, but you know, so maybe there's a certain bias, well I think my professors want to hear this. Uh but you know, engineers are themselves are saying the most important skills in my career are teamwork and communications from a bunch of people that often don't like teamwork and communications, or at least, you know, are always expressing, well, I don't want to give presentations and I don't want to write reports. Yeah, that's true. I guess they would, uh, if they're self-reporting, I guess that that's all right. I just feel like they're, they're very generic terms, but yeah, I'm, I'm being pedantic a little bit. Okay. Well, we'll look in a second. We've, I've got a, a table we can look at that has some tasks that engineers do that, uh, might shed some light on, on that. But anyway, so these were the these were the findings that came out from uh, Kristen Wolf in 2004, and so uh, I th I don't think a big surprise. Uh, her recommendations were trying to incorporate more project type learning uh, into the curriculum, and and indeed project learning has been become a big item in engineering education, and many schools are trying to make projects more more integral part of their undergraduate curriculum. Yeah. I, I think this supports, you know, what you hear uh, about engineering or undergrad in general, in general, general. General? Yes. Words are hard. Um, is that, you know, you don't have to come out an expert. The point of being an undergrad is to show that you know how to learn. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as long as you're able to demonstrate, you know, basic level of competency in, you know, a few different areas that an employer is interested in. And you also show that you, you know, you, you have the drive and the, you know, interpersonal skills to learn more and work with a team, then they, they feel they can teach you the rest. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, at the at the end of the Wolf report, there are a number of uh, comments from MIT alum, uh, and they basically say that you can you can read through them, uh, and a lot of them are specific about the various courses in the MIT curriculum. But they basically say that that what I, the thing I learned out of engineering school was I learned how to take a difficult problem, divide it up into small pieces, be systematic about solving it, you know, keep pressing forward, and you know, don't be afraid of being overwhelmed by lots and lots of information coming at you at an incredible rate. Yeah, that, that's good to know. And I, I found that to be my experience as well. Um, I had little to no power experience when I joined the workforce and was able to show that I knew enough that they could teach me the rest. <laughs> you, you were teachable. Exactly. Excellent. I also bring donuts too. So I'm, well, there you go. I know yeah, how to bribe as well. That's what's important. Yeah. All right. So about uh, that was uh, the the uh, Wolf report was in 2004. About 10 years later, a decade later, another uh, student, Kelly Wang, uh, decided that another report needed to be made. And so uh, there was a survey study on the careers of MIT mechanical engineering undergraduate alumni that was sent back to that surveyed the graduating classes from 92 through 96, 2003 through 2007 and 2009 through 2013, which is basically looking back at that point. Uh, whereas the uh, Wolf reported looked back 10 years, this report was looking back five years, 10 years and 20 years all at the same time. And so uh, in summary, the findings were pretty much identical that I didn't, you know, in reading through it, I didn't see anything that was, was way different uh, out of that report than than the uh, preceding Wolf report. Uh, but one of the interesting findings or tables that came out of that was a list of uh, the most common tasks for engineers and the most common tasks for managers. We, we won't go through all of them, but I thought it'd be interesting to go maybe through the top three or four for both engineers and managers. So what would you think is the most frequent activity or task for an engineer. Looking busy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Spreadsheets. Ding, 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 ding. It's all about that George Costanza. As long as you look angry when someone walks in, like they just interrupted you, you'll do fine. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Yes, the, the answer is to build a big spreadsheet. So anytime that someone comes in your office, you can quickly switch to that window, and they will <sighs> be dutifully impressed. What's the random number function equal... R A N D. Yes, that works inside Google Notes too. So, right. Well, yes. for from the uh, the 2015 survey, the number one task for engineers is meeting with your project team. And so, for all the hours spent in the undergrad curriculum, solving your thermo, or I guess for you guys it was what, what? So, what was the equivalent for you guys in in double E? Thermo was sort of the basic, at least. Uh, uh, at the university uh, that I teach at, it was is the weed out course, right? So when I was there as an undergraduate, sixty six zero percent of the class got a D or an F, and I understand that that uh, percentage is now down to fifty percent, uh, but it's pretty much the weed out course for mechanical engineering. So what it, what was the weed out course for double E? Uh, for my school, it wasn't really a, a course; it was more of a, a year, and that was uh, my third <laughs> year when you had to take electronics. EM fields and linear systems. So you got that fundamental control theory knowledge from linear systems, uh, you know, your Fourier transforms and your discrete transforms and all that good stuff. 
And then there was also EM Fields, which was math and your intro to RF stuff. And then electronics, where you learned about transistors, FET and bipolar. Um, That's so pretty it, cruel to wait until the third year to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it all, it all got hit at once. It was like the, the make or break year, it seemed. If you made it through that, you were probably going to finish. Uh, I have no numbers to back this up, but that was the, the scuttlebutt around the halls. Hmm. Did you have a lot of people drop out at that point? I mean, I remember that being the hardest year. I don't know. Every, everybody that I talked to, I don't know, maybe I self-associate with people who really wanted to be engineers, but I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. And like I said, I have no numbers. This is all rumors that were in the hall. And it was yeah. a pretty pretty grueling year. It was a lot of work. but uh, Yeah, I, I remember those series, of course, as being the most difficult. But the, most of the people that dropped, dropped Calc 2... You know, third semester calc and linear algebra time frame. Um, maybe modern physics. There are some people who really dislike that. So, yeah. So basically, second or third semester. Third semester physics. Yeah. Yeah. So, what about you, Adam? What was the flunk out course in civil? Ditch digging. <laughs> uh, we didn't have one of those. <laughs> Although wow. it might be uh, might be uh, helpful for a lot of people. Um, uh, statics. That was a big one. Um, the I'd say you lost about the same number of people in each of the three calculus courses. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean that that similarly that third year, second first second semester was definitely tough. But I don't remember losing anybody from the program at that point. I think they'd all dropped out after statics or. Um, there were a lot of D's in dynamics, but that was okay. Um, <laughs> Bridges don't move. Well, y- yeah, sort of. Um, and there was a, a degree of um, um, it was a mechanic combined mechanical and civil class, and the uh, instructor admitted at one point that civil engineers got D's in that class. Okay. Um, whether that was truly a bias or just a coincidence, I don't know, um, but. That was okay with all of us. Yeah. Um, and chemistry wasn't real good, but that was more aimed at the pharmacy students that were also in the class. And, you know, the, the handful of engineers were just trying to struggle mm-hmm. our way through. Right. <laughs> so meeting with the project team was not part of any of those courses. No, no. Maybe a lab partner here or there, but right. Wasn't the focus of what you're doing. So for all the hours spent on those, getting through those courses and not flunking out. Number one is meeting with your project team. Number two, reading or sending email. Yep, that sounds right. Yeah, and uh, and number three, I, I'm guessing, Carmen, this is going to sound familiar to you, especially, I don't know, in your new job if it's the same way, but number three was responding to requests or questions from others. Others are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we've got... Uh, uh, meeting with the team, reading and sending email, responding to questions. So the three top items, tasks for engineers, are all communication. Yeah. So finally, I mean, responding to the requests or questions, depending on what your role is, that could that could be technical in nature. Mm, okay. You know, I mean, a big part of my last job was responding to questions from the field, and a lot of that was explaining technical details to them, or, or running a, a quick calculation and getting back to them. It wasn't, um, you know. Here you go. Here's that PDF you asked for. Right. I, I would argue, at least to some extent, all of the all of those should be somewhat technical. 
I mean, there's a reason you're in that position to be doing those things. You know, meeting with your project team is because you have the technical expertise to be either a member or a leader of that team. And responding mm-hmm. to emails, it's, you know, the reason you have the emails because you have the technical expertise to respond to that email. Generally, I don't have email just so other associations that professional associations that I belong to can spam me with offers of insurance that I do not want. Well, there's a certain degree of that too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I do wonder sometime why, why I belong to some of these organizations because it seems all I ever get from them are offers for, for webinars that I do not want and offers for insurance that I do not want. What are you going to do? I don't know. All right, so uh, we've got the meeting with the project team, reading or sending email, responding to requests or questions, and so finally, we get to one that is I, most engineers would think of as being engineers, but they're not. Well, it's working alone to make project decisions. So this isn't working alone to design something or to analyze something. It's working alone to make a decision. I mean, at some point, the real work has to get done. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. So this is maybe a, a topic for another show, but when you go in and you, you gather information, right, the decision has to be made. And you, so you sit there and you, you know, you look at the technical specs and you talk to the vendors and you go in, you have meetings and people express their viewpoint. In the end, if you are responsible for that decision, how does that decision get made? Is it on a purely technical spec? That is, you, you know, you, you create your spreadsheet and you go, well, this gets 10 points and that one only got nine points or how much of that in the end are you fudging it with a little emotional knowledge? Eh, let me change those numbers, type in a new number for that spreadsheet. If I make this, if I fudge this to be 9.5 and that one to be 8.7, the one I really like will rise to the top. That's why you use the random function. <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyway, this, this seems to be a very common ta- task. It's the number four task, uh, working alone to make project decisions or yeah, to make project decisions. So what the heck are they doing? It's a good question. Deciding when to pull the trigger and just say, you know what, build the damn thing. I'm, I'm done trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Well, but isn't that interesting too, right? You, I mean, that's certainly the way in my, you know, personal life. I, you know, there are things that need to be done around the house or, or decisions that need to be made. Uh, and you put it off and you put it off and put it off and suddenly it becomes so painful that you can't ignore it anymore and you go, okay, let's do it. Let's get it taken care of. I could have done it a year ago, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, on my radar. You know, it wasn't a pressing pain point, but now that it is, let's get it done. Yeah. Well, we're always triaging problems. Mm-hmm. Well, at least that's what I tell myself when I forget to do something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, so number five on the engineer task, and we'll only do one or two more here, modifying the design of an existing component. So for a mechanical engineer, that sounds like a thing to do. And the next one is creating or modifying a CAD representation. Um, although I know that the, the next one after that is documenting projects or outcomes. So we're back to communications again. That seems awfully low. Is that a lot of your job? Documenting projects? Well, I think we're probably a little bit below that at this point. But as far as importance, documentation is hugely important. Right. So if if we go down all the way to the bottom for engineers, the bottom least important is interviewing candidates. And the next one is planning a code building cycle. 
And the next one above that is evaluating competitors' products. So those are down at the low end uh, for engineers. For managers, these again are MIT grads and mechanical engineering grads who are now managers. The number one is reading or sending email. Uh, number two is developing a product strategy or direction. That sounds like a managerial type thing. And number three is, just like the engineers, responding to requests or questions from others. You know, when you're the engineer, it always sounds glorious to uh, to move into management, right? You get more pay and you get a little more prestige maybe in the organization, but it looks like you're still doing a lot of the same things. I'm okay with doing a lot of the same things for more pay. <laughs> yeah, if you got to do them anyways, why not? <laughs> right. Fortunately, you have to get pretty far down the list before you get to quote-unquote pure engineering. Yeah. Conducting the analysis of the physics of a product that's uh, like six from the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the, like the, lat, the bottom one for managers is creating or modifying a CAD representation. So apparently, once you become a manager, you never have to work the CAD station again. That's somebody else's problem. <laughs> that's somebody else's problem. That's right. Okay. Well, we've, we've, uh, we've covered some of the, uh, the tasks that uh, engineers perform in the workplace and the frequency of use. One of the things that's sort of interesting is where these skills came from. That is, do we, did they get them from their undergrad curriculum or did they learn them on the job? And uh, again, we won't go into great detail, but essentially the, the number one category, which was the technical knowledge of the thermodynamics, that's vastly almost all learned at school, except for, say, manufacturing, which is less so. Uh, the engineering skills, testing, designing, developing an idea, and context, those are almost about half and half, you know, half learned at school, half learned on the job. The number two category, as we go up in uh, importance, the personal skills, uh, the ones that are really important, independent thinking, professional skills and attitudes, uh, personal skills and attitudes and attributes, almost all learned on the job or somewhere else, not at school especially professional skills, very, only 20% said they learned professional skills at school. And finally, communications and teamwork, again, uh, two-thirds said they learned those skills on the job, not at school. Any surprises? Based on our previous conversations so far, not really. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it, it sounds like they've been listening to our show. Right. <laughs> Okay. I was going to say that 20% who says they learned uh, those communication skills from school, I think, are lying. <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly a different type of communications, right? You know, writing, writing a, uh, a lab report is certainly different than the, the types of emails and, and reports you have to write on the job. So um, we've, we've covered a number of uh, skills, and so I'm going to add one more into the area of communication skills, or at least an example of communication, and that is we recently had an email from a listener, Andrew, uh, who had asked about uh, the YouTube channels that we followed. And so I had come up with a list. I went back through our past episodes and, and came up with a list 
that I will put into the show notes uh, at the end of this episode. Since uh, we generated it for Andrew and, and sent it via email, I can I can put it on the show uh, website for everybody. But they're the ones that I came up with uh, going back through the episodes were practical engineering uh, that we had with uh, uh, it's a Grady was it Hill House? Yes, Grady Hill House, and uh, the one that uh, Brian recommended. Uh, from our friend who likes to shock himself and uh, damn near kill himself in, in every video episode. That was Electro Boom. Yes. Greatest YouTube engineer. <laughs> it's, it's it's funny to watch him. I will say that. Uh, you had mentioned uh, Carmen and, and Alan Wolke, uh, who has his episode, Little Tutorials in Electronics. Also former guest of the show. Indeed. Uh, Ad Ohms. Great YouTube channel. The EEB blog with uh, Dave Jones, Applied Science. Oh, with uh, that is uh, that's uh, Ben, ben Krasno, right? He's fantastic too. Best illicit X-ray machine operator ever. <laughs> and there are many out there. Yes. Uh, Jerry Ellsworth. She's amazing too. And of course, our friend Chris Gamble at Contextual Electronics. Who's he? <laughs> <laughs> Some schmuck on the internet. He's, he's just a guy. Yeah. Uh, all right. And uh, so, and, uh, so Carmen, you had added in an, an additional response to Andrew. Uh, what were the, the additional vidcasts that you suggested you watch? Uh, so I, I threw out there uh, the, the signal path which is really in-depth teardowns of some electrical test equipment and really deep dives into various, you know, theoretical concepts that every electrical engineer should know uh, to at least some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very long videos, you know, budget at least 45 minutes or more to an hour and a half, but uh, they're very well worth it. Um, there's also Great Scott, which I just found recently, so I don't know too much about it. I think, and don't quote me on it, um, as I say it, to be recorded on the internet for all time, yeah. that uh, the, the guy who puts the channel out might be learning as he goes along, but Either way, that doesn't hold them back, and uh, it's pretty good content, top-notch. Okay. And then uh, Analog Zoo uh, by a guy named Craig out in Silicon Valley, or in thereabouts, from what I can tell. Uh, this is a very, have very heavy analog focus into circuit design, so it's right up my alley. Uh, and I also really like the actual pages on his website because he links to all his references, and there's some really old or obscure app notes and PDFs that are online that I would have otherwise overlooked or missed. And I don't know if I'll ever refer to them, but I have them saved in various places. So if the, uh, you know, the zombie apocalypse ever happens, I can refer back to them. Mm -hmm. Very good. And then uh, I'd also like to throw out, uh, now we've mentioned the channel on there a few times as well, uh, AVE, Arduino versus Evil. And it's much more mechanical focused um, on but he he does do some electrical stuff, but it's just really good to see somebody with such a, an in-depth knowledge of manufacturing just tear stuff apart and and talk about how it's made and why something was a cheap decision and you know all, all the stuff that I don't know when it comes <laughs> to mechanical things, which is a great deal of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, having him explain it, and he's very not safe for work. He swears a lot, so maybe don't watch <laughs> that one on your watch. Okay. But, but definitely check it out on your own time. Okay. Right. So I, I don't watch YouTube videos enough to, to have much to uh, recommend. 
What about you, Adam? Are there is there anything similar in the in the world of civil engineering? Uh, you know, Grady, I think is doing some of the best uh, the best work I've seen. Okay. Um, otherwise, I yeah don't really watch very many YouTube videos for engineering content. Mm-hmm. You're watching all the cat videos. <laughs> um, no tractor videos. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> Home <laughs> repair videos. Uh, <laughs> yeah, based on our last conversation, why am I not surprised? <laughs> yeah. By, by, by the way, I hope you appreciate that in the show notes for the last time I did, I did link to a video of someone on uh, the same style and brand of tractor as you have. I'll have to check out that, uh, that video. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were actually quite a few videos of people uh, uh, working on their gravel driveways with that tractor. So... I did actually link to somebody that that uh, could explain that. Nice. All right. So I think we have one more tab to cover here, don't we? Oh, have well, I? also, uh, I was going to mention a couple more. Um, uh, no, you don't get a turn, Brian. Oh, I know. Uh, Brian Douglas on YouTube has a really awesome series of lectures on controls and signals. It looks like he's basically building a classic controls course uh through seven to 20 minute youtube videos neat uh nerd rage is also really really cool um more chemistry than anything else Ooh. but uh it's, it's been one of the most entertaining channels i've watched in a long time uh and a really strange one um is primitive technology uh where a guy basically does uh, maybe paleolithic style technology, you know, straight from the mud, mm-hmm. smelting metal, making clay tiles, that kind of stuff. Neat. So Neat. really cool, really, really well done videos. Cool. And, and so when you watch this, are you watching this in virtual reality or just on your plain old tablet? Uh, right on the TV. In, in our, <laughs> no joke. In our house, YouTube is probably the most commonly watched video source okay that could also be really sad but well so let me ask is they not i mean i i obviously wander into youtube from time to time but don't partake of it in great quantities i know they have thing you know they have movies these days as well as they have you know the the cat videos that everybody wants to watch so is are these basically you know are you having to go search to find the content or do have you have you know signed up for enough things that the content is basically coming to you yeah, that's what I'm – so I was going to ask, have you subscribed to anyone? I've not subscribed to anything. Okay, so it, if you sign into something that has a consistent login, which for me could be everything from Apple TVs to my PC, yeah. to, my, to my phone, yeah. um, anything, I want, anything I watch or subscribe to kind of ensures that more content along the same lines ends up getting sent my way. Okay. So, you know, when you're watching a lot of engineering and crazy geek-related things, all of a sudden the recommended feed starts to be more channels that you would find very interesting. So it's it's less serendipity and more they're doing a good job picking out things that I would like. Interesting. And there's a lot of great content out there. Obviously, um, I just didn't know how you how you were finding it so frequently because, <laughs> as one who never really signed in for anything or signed up for anything, it uh, all I saw were the cat videos. Yeah, and I tend not to sign up for 
social media type stuff, but this is pretty sweet. Okay. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah. I'm sure if you actually took this list and subscribed to all of these channels, you'd end up with a recommended feed that would probably be very engineering centric. Excellent. I'll have to try that. This will make Google very happy also. Yes. So we probably uh, should be thinking about uh, wrapping this up. Let me uh, close by proposing one final question, and that is of all the skills that you've had to acquire during your engineering career, what is the most valuable skill that you have? Perseverance. Okay. That's good. What about you, Carmen? Uh I, I could take criticism pretty well. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with my ideas or presentations having holes poked in them. And, you know, I, I don't take it personal. Uh, yeah. So that, that that's definitely helped me grow because I can ask questions or ask where I went wrong. And, you know, if, if I have screwed up, I don't, uh, I don't get all bent out of shape about it. Right. That's uh, I remember in James Trevelyan's book, uh, The Making of an Expert Engineer, he notes that the willingness to ask questions is one of the uh, the leading indicators of someone who will be successful as an engineer. Yeah, and I, I know I've made at least one or two dumb mistakes on just about everything I've done. So if, if no one ever speaks up, I get nervous. <laughs> if, if you've only made one or two dumb mistakes, you're doing pretty good. No, no, that's per project, not overall. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a per day number to me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to have reviews and people people tell me how to improve and right. catch something I missed. Right. And what about you, uh, Adam? Um, dealing with project managers. Hmm. Okay. And and so what does that entail? What is it? Is it uh, being kind so as not to uh, to uh, deflate their egos too much, or is it? Uh, providing them with inf information on a timely basis. Um, sometimes it's how to not provide them information on a timely basis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, managing expectations and uh, predicting when things are going to get done and, and how long it's going to take and, and how to tell somebody, uh, no, I'm not going to get done what you want me to get done on the time frame you want me to do it. Okay. That sounds like a valuable skill. And uh, for for me, I think it has been a understanding that the uh, the devil is in the details. Uh, I am I'm never comfortable with anything. Uh, I'm always looking, trying to find you know where the, what are the details, what have we overlooked, what still needs to be done, you know what is the factor that no one has thought of that's going to bite us um, if we don't get it taken care of. And so it uh, it makes me a sometimes a uh, a, a poor teammate because I don't want to jump on board and go, yay, Rod, this, this is going great. Uh, Cause I'm always worried about what's going wrong. Uh, but I do feel I, you know, as a result of that, I'm able to contribute by occasionally finding uh, those little needles in the haystack that eventually uh, somebody's got to step on. So, but anyway, uh, the, that attention to detail, I think is a, is a valuable skill that, that I've taken through my engineering career. So that is our episode on, uh, mad skills and uh, we will gather once more in a couple of weeks and uh, put together another episode for the engineering commons all right thanks jeff we'll talk to you soon all right take care guys bye good evening the engineering commons is produced in affiliation with big beacon a social movement for transforming engineering education 
For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>